No, it's a tremendous pleasure to be here. I've long heard about this church, and it has been wonderful to actually come and to see it today. Nothing complicated tonight. I just had the privilege of opening up the Scriptures. Before we turn to them, let's pray. Lord, we ask that you will open your Word to our hearts and our hearts to your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. I come from Ireland originally, as Rick was suggesting, and there's a wonderful old story of a Spanish professor who's visiting Ireland, finding the differences between Irish culture and Spanish culture. And he was out on the West Coast, which is a part of Ireland where time almost stands still. He found an old man puffing his pipe outside a pub, and he'd been propping up the pub most of the day, and he was chatting to him about various Irish customs. And one of his questions was, in Ireland, do you have any word that's the equivalent of our Spanish word, manana? The old Irishman thought for a long time and said, no, we don't have any word as urgent as manana. <laughs> now, that was the old Ireland. Ireland since then has gone through its Celtic tiger stage and sadly has a recession now. But if you think most of our modern world is consumed with what's called fast life, 24-7 pressure, business at the speed of light, war at warp speed, and so on and so on, we are the first generation in our world of instant immediacy to live quite beyond the power of human comprehension. The old metaphor for something fast was a blink of an eye. But in our modern world of nanoseconds, a blink of an eye is 500 billionth of a nanosecond. Very, very slow. And you can see the tremendous pressure that we're living on as modern people. Now, where did this come from? It certainly didn't come from the East with its view of time as cycles you can see that it actually came from the Scriptures and the Jewish and Christian understanding of time and history moving in a direction with progress, but incredibly speeded up by modern industry and modern technology and so on. Now, it's always been rather odd to me that with all the stress today on people thinking Christianly and developing a Christian worldview, here we are in this incredible world of instant immediacy, and very few Christians try and understand it. And many people who talk about worldviews and things like this, they have a view that's very static. Now, there's an awful lot in Scripture, and certainly part of our view of the world as Christian, about time. There are very positive passages. There are very negative passages. You can think in the Old Testament, among the positive ones, of some of the followers of King David who were skilled in reading the signs of the times to know what course Israel should follow. There were negative ones, too, in the Old Testament. Jeremiah taunts the Pharaoh of his day, King Bombas, King Hot Air, the man who missed his moment. 
If you turn to the New Testament, sadly, most of the references are negative. But our Lord speaks about generation and hour and so on, usually because His disciples and His generation were missing Him. In Luke 11, more than six times, He says, this generation, this generation, this generation, and they didn't get it. And again and again, He tells them what He's going to do, going to Jerusalem to be arrested, tried. Words that are very factual. They're not arcane theological words, and yet we read they could make no sense of this. Most of the great references to time in the New Testament are negative, and supremely on Palm Sunday, which is coming, as our Lord weeps over Jerusalem. Why? Because they missed God's moment when it came. But there is several, actually, but one great example of a positive view in the New Testament, and that's what I want to focus on tonight. A wonderful little verse that many people just read fast because most of the chapter is about something else and probably miss. It's in the middle of Acts 13. Acts 13 is a very important chapter in the book of Acts. You can see there, for instance, in the first verses, that there are far more leaders in the early church than we recognize. Among the elders in Antioch, where Paul and Silas are about to be sent out on, is a gentleman, an elder of the church, who was a boyhood friend of King Herod. The chapter is also very famous because it's the hinged chapter where Saul is called both Saul and Paul but after this chapter, only Paul. He now becomes his new Christian name. It's also a very important chapter because this is where Paul turns from the Jews who resist him and resist him and resist him to the Gentiles. And a whole new expansion of the Christian kingdom of God breaks out. But most of the chapters are a description of Paul's sermon in Pisidian Antioch, not his hometown Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. And they turn to Paul and ask him if he has anything to say. Can you imagine asking Paul if he's anything to say? Sure enough, he pops up and he's got lots to say. And most of the chapters are a great survey of the Jewish history of God's people. But his climax he wants to contrast King David, who died and is still dead, with King David's greater son, who also died. Unlike our Muslim friends who believe that Jesus never died. No, he truly died, but he didn't stay there and is now alive. And as Paul is giving this great contrast between David and Jesus, he throws in a tiny little aside. And in verse 36, he simply says, David, after he'd served God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep. Not terribly profound in terms of any theological words. You don't have to go to seminary to understand this. I haven't been to seminary. The words are all incredibly simple, but if you think about them, they are incredibly profound, especially as we ask, what does that mean for us today? 
to serve God's purpose in our own time, and that's what we're about. So let me just underscore four very, very simple points from that verse. The first is you see there a very surprising tribute. I've written a number of books, but I've never had a day of writing courses, but I do remember something my English teacher told me. The strength of a sentence is in the verb. Bad English piles up adjectives colorfully, but that's bad. The strength of a sentence is in the verb. Now you think here, what's the verb? You know, if you know any Jewish people, that King David is second only to Moses. He's considered greater than Joshua and Samuel and Gideon and Isaiah and Jeremiah, you name it. All the great men and women of the Old Testament, David is second only to Moses for the Jewish people. And we know why. The teenage giant killer, the rebel chieftain, the founder of this great dynasty in a warrior, the builder, or at least the one who laid the foundations for the temple. And of course, among many other things, the sweet singer of Israel, whose poetry is some of the most beautiful and profound the world has ever known. And here in this chapter, we have the greatest tribute of all, that David, the Lord says, is a man after my own heart, God says. So think of the verbs you might have used. He fought he conquered, he founded, he built, and all sorts of things. He danced before the Lord and so on. None of those are said. What does it say? He served. A king served. And now, obviously, Paul is thinking of Jesus. And you remember our Lord saying, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And you remember the famous time they came in. And you know when men came in after a hot, dusty journey, the, the slave would be brought on with a basin. And if there was no slaves, sorry women, the woman of the house would be brought on in those days. And if there was no woman, the youngest disciple would do the job, and Jesus does it. He not only talks it, he demonstrates it. And you can see through all Paul's writings how much this has touched him so deeply. So when he's talking to the new Christians in Thessaloniki, Thessalonians, he says these are people who've turned from idols to God, but to what? He might have said to worship God, all sorts of… He says, no, you've turned from idols to serve the living God. Now think of that today. Almost everything in America is about I, myself, and me, and all the rest of us doing the same. We're in a consumer society that meets our needs and our whims and our fantasies in order to sell us all sorts of things. We go to the therapist, the counselor, it's all about our needs again. We go to the media, and they're, of course, playing to the things, the audience, it's all about us. And you can see in America in the last 20 years, this dreadful phrase has come in, we now come to church to have a worship experience. It used to be a worship service. The worship experience is about us. You can see how many people shop and hop. 
They don't like the music down the road to somewhere else. They don't like the sermon down the road to another preacher. Why? It's a worship experience about me, and if I'm not satisfied, just as I might learn a better supermarket or a better this, that, and the other, I'll go hopping and shopping, channel surfing. And you can see that attitude has crept into the church. Whereas in Paul, and Paul is crediting David, he served. Worship is not about us. It's worshiping the Lord for all that He's worth. And here, this great King of Israel, Paul's surprising tribute, David served. But notice the second thing there, a highly significant task. David served God's purpose. Now, we're here in America. This is a country with dynamism and entrepreneurialism with hardly any countries to rival it. Where did it come from? It didn't come from, as I said earlier, the East. If you've ever been to a Buddhist or a Hindu culture, their view of time is the great cycle, the wheel that goes round and round and round. And while we're caught to the wheel, we desire and we crave and we become attached and we go round. And you know in the East, the problem is not that you die. The problem is you're born again and you go back round the wheel. And the Hindus say maybe on average 35,000 times. And obviously in that world, there's no great meaning to each time round. Not in our Western view. But where does the Western view come from? Of course, it comes from the Scriptures. Just as God said, let there be light, and a whole cosmos sprang into being. So God to Abraham, and then through Jesus to His disciples, follow me. And as people follow the Lord, they're rising to be what the Lord knows they can be because He created them. And creation doesn't just mean be who you are and you're created, that's it. No. Creation plus calling. Creation means be who you are. Calling means become who you can become. And you can see this tremendous purpose of those who discover God's purpose. Now, of course, calling, as with every biblical truth, has a dark side, a shadow side. We can take any biblical truth and distort it. And the wonder of this notion of calling, that God knows every one of us and called every one of us uniquely, obviously it can be turned, if we're not careful, into conceit. In my book, I tell the story of Churchill, who in his cabinet had a Presbyterian who was very full of the notion of calling and was, frankly, very conceited. And Churchill couldn't stand him. And one day after this gentleman, I won't mention his name, left the cabinet room, Churchill turned to the others and said, there but for the grace of God goes God. <laughs> the man was so full of himself because of his sense of calling. But you see, David served God's purpose, yes, and found his purpose in serving God's purpose, but he served. It wasn't about David. It was about the Lord. But there's a third very simple little point there. A specific time. David served God's purpose in his own generation. Now, that sounds rather obvious. You can't serve it in anything else. 
But I think that's actually very important today, because we're living in this globalized age. Never has the world been bigger. Never has it moved faster. So Marshall McLuhan said famously, as you know, that we live in a global village. And that's true in a way. But it's not true in another way. Leaders are now in touch with the whole world the whole time, because it's all interconnected. And to people who are political or corporate or other types of leaders, the world is not a little cozy global village. It's bigger than ever before. And anyone has begun to look at our globalized world, you know the dominant global emotion is fear. And because of this, many people in our world are paralyzed, overwhelmed by fear, and take resorts in all sorts of things. But one of our Christian responses to that is not just the common refrain, have no fear, but it's the fact that our responsibilities are limited, thank God. I always see the notion of calling rather like a target. If you think of a target, bow and arrow, rifle, or whatever, you have the bullseye. All of us live somewhere in the bullseye. I imagine most of you, your bullseye is Oak Brook. Mine at the moment is Washington, but I can come here today. We all have somewhere we live, the core focus of our living, and then we can do all sorts of things that go away from that. We can travel. We can give money. We can email. We can phone. We can vote. And if you think the furthest sphere of influence of all our concentric circles and the target is what? Prayer. You can pray for people you've never met. You can pray for countries that wouldn't let you in. You might pray for places that you couldn't buy a ticket to, but your prayers can be powerful there even though you're still living here in Oak Brook. But here's the point. At the end of the day, if you work out all the little spheres of influence of our little concentric lives, they're very small, thank God. That's why we can sleep tonight. We're not responsible for the whole world. The Lord has many others with all their callings too, and He's the one who's sovereign. And people who take on more responsibility that's widened their calling always lose a lot of unnecessary sleep. But here you have this second focus. David served God in his generation. Now you can see many in this generation are starting to panic about the future and decades down 2050, 2080. I was saying this afternoon, I'm reading a book currently, the next hundred years. And certainly, we should think in a broader way than many people do. But at the end of the day, all our spheres of influence and our focuses are limited, thank God. I'm not responsible for my son and his generation. He is, and they are. I'm responsible for what I do in my time. I'm maybe one of the older ones in the church tonight. Some people are much younger, but you too will be old one day, and you too, and one day, all of us here tonight will be gone. But all that we're responsible for is the kingdom of God in our generation. But then there's a fourth and a wonderfully simple finish. This surprising tribute David served. This greatly significant task, God's purpose, 
the specific time in his own generation. But what does it say at the end? After he'd done all that, he fell asleep. And that is the word. It doesn't say he died. It says he fell asleep. Now, of course, it's a euphemism, a kinder, gentler way of saying it. I don't know about American, but in English, we have all sorts of far blunter words. He croaked. He kicked the bucket or whatever. All sorts of rather blunter words about death. And, of course, we have euphemisms here, too. Struck me on coming here, Americans hardly ever say died. People just pass. First, I thought that was very odd. They pass? Then I realized they were saying they died. Now, the point is here, it is a euphemism. He fell asleep. But it's a euphemism with deep theological meaning. None of us tonight will be afraid when we put our heads in the pillow. Now, I don't know what's going to happen to me one minute after I've got... No. Head on the pillow, sleep tomorrow morning. And the same for all of us who die in Jesus. Because he died and, unlike David, rose again. And he is the pioneer of those who trust in him and will rise again. One day, we will put our heads in the pillow and not wake up in this world, but wake up to a new world and a new life. But it be like falling asleep. Now, what does all this mean to us today? A couple of years ago, I was in a university, and I got the question. You often get a question that's really unusual. There are only so many questions in the room, so many answers in the room, but every so often, you get one that really makes you think. And a student asked me, if you could be alive in any generation except this one, which one would you choose? goodness, never been asked that before. And I wasn't quite sure what he was after, and I thought, was he? Anyway, all sorts of things flashed through my mind in a billionth of a second. Will I choose Pericles Athens, or Hadrian's Rome, or the founders America, or William Pitt and William Wilberforce's England, or, or what? But actually, what came to me in a flash was, I would choose his generation. Because it's said that the current generation who are now rising in their 20s and 30s are a generation that will see the convergence of all sorts of crunch issues in the world, demographic, economic, environmental, nuclear, all sorts of things. If they answer them well and responsibly, humankind has relatively untroubled sailing ahead. If they answer them badly, or don't answer them at all, humankind is an extraordinary trouble, an extraordinary generation to face the challenges, and I hope Christians will rise to that challenge well. But how do we serve God's purpose in our own generation? How do we discern the moment? I don't suggest for a moment that I'm better than anyone else at this, But if you look at the Gospels, I would say there are two things that we've got to hold in mind. The first is clearing the negative. Why did so many people, even the very closest to Jesus, 
miss the moment. There are two reasons. One is they had political or personal expectations which were like distorting lenses so they didn't see Jesus. Think of the zealots. They wanted a Messiah who'd ride in on a horse and sweep the Romans away, and so on. And our Lord comes in on a donkey, a very, very different Messiah, and they missed Him. But think of the personal distortions. Even James and John, two of the three intimate ones to our Lord, maybe egged on by their mother as we see, but certainly for themselves too, their family wanted the best seats in the kingdom when it came. No, said Jesus, you haven't got it. Even the closest to him had personal expectations tied in with their own egos, and so they missed him. Lord, we've got to say, cleanse all the false cultural political… So many American Christians, do they see the kingdom, or has it been all tied in with republicanism or whatever? We are Christ's people first and last before we're anything else in terms of human allegiances. That's the negative. Lord, clear away all the false lenses. But the positive is surely we've got to be very close listening to the Holy Spirit. All the promptings in the New Testament are when the Holy Spirit speaks. I was saying this afternoon, how did the gospel get to Africa? And it got there before Europe. The Spirit spoke to Peter, and he goes to a crossroads and meets the Ethiopian eunuch, and the gospel gets to Africa. How does it get to Europe? Paul is sure the next place is Bithynia, Asia Minor. And he knocks on the door, and he's checked and frustrated and blocked, and then the Spirit speaks to him through the man from Macedonia, and off he goes to Europe. And one historian says, when that unknown rabbi crossed from Troas in Asia to Philippi in Europe, that was more world-shaping than the great battle of Actium, which settled the fate of the Roman Empire just 20 miles away. How did the gospel get to the Gentiles? In other words, to us, when the Spirit blew the prejudices of Peter. Today, we've got to learn to be prompted and to obey the leading of the Holy Spirit moment by moment in our life. So, if ever there was a time when we need under the Lord to recognize the moment and to serve God's purposes, it's at this extraordinary moment. Our Western world is divided and in decline. America is quite clearly on the verge, not necessarily, not inevitably, but on the edge of potential decline. The church in America is in the most appalling state, and you can see other powers arriving in the world, and we could be in a very, very different world in a very short time. If ever our Lord is surely wanting people to recognize the moment and serve His purposes, it's today. May God help us all to be like David and serve God's purposes in our generation.